Psalms 120 to 134. Uh, those of you who have been a part of this series, you probably know what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, just to remind you what this collection of psalms is. Uh, it was a collection that was put together at some point in Old Testament history, late, in the latter part uh, of, of, its history, of Israel's history, as the pilgrims would make their way up to Jerusalem, ascending up to the Temple Mount to uh, gather there for the annual feasts, this collection of songs was, was put together that the people might have something to sing together, to have their hearts, their minds be prepared, not just individually, but collectively, corporately, together as they were making their way to the temple. Well, Psalm 132 is part of that collection. It's one of the longer ones within the collection, and uh, it, it, it presupposes, you'll, you'll see this from the opening, the very beginning of, of the psalm, it presupposes that the people are encountering some difficulty, anticipating difficulty. The, the atmosphere, the context is hard circumstance. Otherwise, you wouldn't have this in, in included. Surely, it has no place other than that. So, follow along with me as we read from Psalm 132. This is the word of the Lord. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne." If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that somehow these words have to be pointing to you. And we would, we would like to understand how. And we would like to understand how these ancient words from ancient times, sung by an ancient people, connect with our own day, connect with our own stuff, connect with our own heartache. Uh, we ask that you would please, please, by your Holy Spirit, Move within even our poor hearts this morning. You, the one who breathed these words out, 
such that no more and no less than what you wanted to be written has been recorded. You, the one who has done that, given to us your authoritative, trustworthy word, we ask also that you would shine light into the crevices, the dark, hidden places of our hearts where there is comfort needed and conviction as well. Encourage us, we ask in your name. Amen. Well, with everything happening domestically right now, you very likely miss this news from China. I'll read to you an excerpt. I think this was from maybe CNN.com. Just 24, 48 hours ago, okay? Chinese rescue teams say it might be more than two weeks until they can save a group of miners trapped hundreds of meters underground. They've been trapped since an explosion closed the entrance tunnel to the Hushan gold mine in Shandong province on January 10th. Authorities made contact with 11 surviving miners a week before the blast, but one has since died. Rescuers have drilled small holes to supply food and medicine to the men. The cause of the explosion that sealed the mine entrance is still not known. The fate of another 11 miners trapped by the blast is unclear. Authorities have been unable to communicate with them despite lowering food and messages into other areas of the mine. The group discovered alive told rescuers they had established communication with a lone miner about 100 meters below them, but had since lost touch with him. How will the rescue work? Currently, rescue operations are trying to widen a narrow shaft to make it big enough to lift the miners out. However, drilling is proving difficult as it needs to get through particularly hard granite, and the miners are trapped far from the surface. Rescuers face an added problem in that the mine is waterlogged, and there's the risk that the chamber where the miners are stuck could flood. Quote, the obstacles are just too huge, which means we need at least, and this is just like a day or two ago, we need at least another 15 days or more to even reach the miners. So said Gong Haitao, deputy head of the local publicity department. The debris standing in the way weighs about 70 tons. Now, it's worth noting that uh, while the miners have, fortunately, received uh, shipments, for lack of a better way to put it, of porridge and nutritional liquids, uh, it's worth noting that over the last few days they sent a message up asking if could you please send us a, uh, a traditional meal of sausages. And that's heartening, right? It sounds so human, right? But, of course, what they most need is rescue. What they most and desperately need is rescue. Challenging times have a way of making clear your essential needs, right? Has a way of just kind of pushing the other stuff to the side. Challenging times have a way of making clear our essential needs. And no doubt, no few of us here in this room are experiencing challenging times, crises of varying sorts, perhaps not life-threatening, though maybe, maybe, but, you know, things, I, I have no doubt, I have no doubt that some of you right now, some of you watching right now, 
When I, when I use that kind of language, that kind of term, some, some things where the outcome for you is uncertain, you feel powerless in the sense of how to move into this, this thing for a better outcome, and the way forward is just you, you can't see it, and perhaps, perhaps that's tempting you towards not just dismay, but despair. Those are challenging times. They are very real, and our text speaks to them. Our text speaks right into it, as all the Word so beautifully does. And it shows us that our greatest need in challenging times is to know the Lord. That sounds very elementary, right? That sounds like gospel faith 101, doesn't it? We don't ever actually complete that class. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that. You never get a certificate that says, oh, you finished that. Our greatest need in challenging times is, is to know the Lord. Now, okay, what would knowing the Lord look like, and how does that uh, come out in this text, in Psalm 132? Well, at least in three ways. One, it shows us our need of being seen, and to know that we are seen, perhaps to be more clear. So, it shows us our, our need to know that we are seen, it shows us our need to draw close, and most fundamentally, chiefly of all, our need to be saved our need to be saved in the deepest, highest, richest way of saying that. So let's look at these things. Our need to be seen, our need to draw near, our need to be saved. Our need to be seen. You see this right away in the opening words of the psalm. We don't get very far before you just stop to think, oh, 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 oh. Remember, oh Lord. And I'm just going to stop right there. Do you hear what the psalmists are putting there before us? Remember, this is, this is not a call for us to remember, right? This is not the call for the people to remember, as you see in so many other places of Scripture. In this case, this is the people saying to the Lord, remember. It's pretty striking when you think about that. What on earth does that mean? Well, it can't mean some pathetic, sad plaintive cry, well, hey, you know, if it's okay, could you please not forget? Could you try and keep this in mind? That, that, no, no, that, there's no way that that's what that means. This is not plaintive and passive. This is active and engaged. Oh, Lord, would you hear us? Would you see us? Would you attend to us? Remember, O oh Lord, you see this time and time again in the Psalms. Keep your thumb there in Psalm 132. If you want to turn with me, I can take you on a little tour here. Psalm 25, Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7, we see this very language used uh, here. Remember your mercy, O oh Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And, and you see this, again, 
quite a bit in the Psalms. You actually see it in other ways, well, translated with other words in the English, though it's the same in the original Hebrew. For instance, uh, Psalm 8, Psalm 8 verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? It's the same thing, this remembering. What is man which you are mindful of him? And you hear, you see something of, of a parallel, and the son of man that you care for him, which tells us something about what that's meant to mean. Just one psalm over, Psalm 9, uh, verses 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples His deeds. For He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Again, O Lord, would You hear us. Oh, Lord, would you see us? Oh, Lord, would you attend to us, come to us? Uh, remember, oh, Lord. What, that's, okay, so that's what it means. On what, of what would be the occasion of such a cry, such a prayer? Well, of course, it comes from, it erupts from, it flows from the, the lips, the hearts of the community of believers, disciples of the Lord, those who have heard His call and responded by repenting and believing and, and following Him, the assembly of His children adopted into His care, into His family, children looking to Him, crying out to Him, Abba, Father, help! Help me, save me, hear me in the midst of trouble, in times of need, when things are hard, when the waters are rising. Remember, O oh Lord, remember, O oh Lord. You see, He loves us, so He shows us even what to say. He's taking us by our little hands and giving us even the words because sometimes we don't have them, right? I don't even know what to say. I'm so shell-shocked by what's just happened. And He gives us even His love is so tender and He's so close and so good, He gives us even the words. He, he's giving us permission to say to Him, if you can believe this, remember, as though He won't. Remember, O Lord, He does hear, He does see. Those of you who have been uh, tuning into these fireside chats that I've been doing over the last several months, a couple times a week, there, there was one a couple weeks ago uh, and I, I was talking about Hagar, not Sammy Hagar, uh, Hagar in, in Genesis, uh, the uh, slave girl of Abraham or Abram at the time, Abram and Sarai, later renamed Abraham and Sarah. Uh, let, let me uh, set the tone here because I, I do want to read a portion from Genesis 16 here in just a minute. So here's what you have going on. So Abraham is beginning to question Sarai, excuse me, Abram and Sarai, they're beginning to question, beginning to wonder how in the world is the Lord going to, in fact, come through on this promise to bless, uh, bless Abram with an heir, that we would have a family, that there would be a line, that there would be a nation. How can that possibly be? We're getting older, 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 and nothing is happening here. And so, with Sarai's encouragement, Abram takes matters into his own hands by taking Hagar, his servant, into his arms and she conceives. Not surprisingly, that creates some tension in the family dynamics. Sarai is jealous, upset, 
She begins, as the text tells us, to treat Hagar harshly. Hagar's but really just a slave girl. She has no power, no, no standing in, in this, no, no anything. And so she flees. She runs off into the wilderness. And that's where I want to pick up with the, the text. Uh, uh, Genesis, Genesis 16, starting in verse 7. 16.7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And then in verses 11 and 12, there are words said of her offspring and the, the blessing that's going to come upon that line. And then you pick up in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have been seen. Here I have seen him who looks after me. You are a God of of seeing. He is a God of seeing. He hears us. I mean, indeed, a name given to him is the one who sees. He sees us. He hears us. He sees us. He loves us so again. He gives us the very words with which to speak, such as his tenderness and his goodness towards us. Remember, O Lord. I wonder if you know He's given you those words. Do you know even this morning, He sees you, He hears you, and He's given you even those words to pray to Him? And our greatest need, our, our greatest need and time of need and the worst of times is to know Him. And part of that is knowing we are seen. Part of that is knowing we are seen, which then takes us to this, this next point, and that is to, to draw close, to draw near to this one who sees us. And we see that back to the psalm, Psalm 132. It comes out especially in verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 10 again, but it, it, that's the first half, basically the first half of the psalm. And it comes out here as David is expressing, uh, well, well it, the, the psalmist is hearkening back. The psalmist is hearkening back to the history, as we read earlier from 2 Samuel 7, as David was expressing his longing to build this temple. So, okay, so here's the backdrop just to sum it up again. David has reached the point. He's settled in as the king. He has settled into his house, his palace, and he wants now, he feels it is appropriate now to build the Lord a house, a temple. For all this time, in the, up, up to this point in Old Testament history, God has moved with His people, been with His people there within the tabernacle. There's no temple at this point. This is a tabernacle. This is a fairly sophisticated tent, mobile, pretty temporary structure meant to be picked up and, and moved from time to time, which it was, of course, during the wilderness period of, of the Exodus. And, and David is recognizing, okay, you've established me. It's time. It's time for the people, this kingdom, to have 
in the capital city, a temple, a place, a dwelling place, a resting place for you, my God, the God of my people, a place for the ark, the ark of the covenant, referred to even in the psalm as his footstool, the the place upon which you might say the, the feet of the eternal king rested upon the earth. The fi- somehow, somehow, this is the, the physical dwelling of the eternal, everlasting, cosmic God. The ark, the tabernacle, later the temple. David, that's his intent, that's his desire. He longs to, to do this. I understand that it was not merely a political move on his part. This is not, as some commentators misinformed, I will just say, We'll, we'll try and convince you, well, he, this is just a power play. He's just trying to consolidate his political power. Okay, granted, granted, in, in the ancient history, it is true, it is true that kings would at such times build a temple for their god or gods, and it is true, certainly there would be pragmatic benefits in doing such, and you could imagine how that would have an impact upon the kingdom, you know, as the king builds this, this temple. But that's not, that's not what's going on here at all. This is not a political move. This is a relational move. David knows, as is said here, the mighty one of Jacob. And he is known, he he knows and he knows that he is known by the mighty one of Jacob. Now, that language elicits imagery of this one who is great in power and amazing in grace. When you know anything about Jacob and to refer to the Lord as the mighty one of Jacob brings those things together, his power and his grace, his might and his mercy. In no way is David criticized here for what he wants to do. He's commended. He's commended for this. He he longs to um, bear any cost, to pay any price, endure any hardship. And indeed, you see there in the opening verses of Psalm 132, indeed he had. Such was the intensity of his desire to draw near and to be near and have near the Lord. And you recognize how important, how vital this was. Let me try and capture something of this this zeal, this desire that, that just could not be quenched. It could not, it was an unstoppable sort of desire. So, 2020 was a tough year. I don't have to convince you of that. I, maybe I could tell you this. This may surprise you. It could have been worse. I mean, we could have gotten news from Hollywood that somebody wanted to do a remake of The Princess Bride. I, I mean, you don't, you don't mess with a perfect thing. You just you, you don't do that. And, and there, there's no point. And you, you, where do you go, Right? Um, th- that film has so many moments, so many memorable lines. And I'm just going to grab one, one, one exchange uh, between, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Wesley and Buttercup. Great names. Uh, so here you go. It's towards the eh, latter tenth of the film, I guess. Wesley, I told you I would always come for you. Why didn't you wait for me? Well, Buttercup says, well, you were dead. Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. I will never doubt again. There will never be a need. 
Here's the idea. It's a silly analogy, I'll grant you, but here's the idea. What that man is saying is nothing will stop his pursuit of that woman. And what we see here in the passion of David is that nothing would stop his pursuit of his God and his desire to be in his presence. Nothing. That's why he was willing, we see here, to bear any cost and pay any price and endure any hardship. Because why? Because he knew that he was drawing near to the one who had, was, and would bear any costs, pay any price, endure any hardship to be near us. And that's the God he wanted to be near, who would go to such lengths for us. Now, here's a challenging question that we need to ask at this point of ourselves. Given where we stand in the flow of history, so David is about a thousand years before the coming of Christ, okay? And you see his zeal to draw near, given what he knows of the Lord at that point. Given what we know, on the other side of the cross, as we can see the intensity of the hardship that he endured to draw near us, how much more so, as we look at David's zeal, his desire to draw near to the Lord, how much more so than our desire should be to do the same? Do you see? And how sad that oftentimes it is the case that it is so much less that desire. I'm just saying that not of anybody in particular. I'm saying that of myself, everybody here. How much more? How much more, given what we can see, given what we know? Our greatest need, our greatest need in difficult times is hard times is to know Him. And part of that knowing Him is drawing near to Him. But there's something else to be said, and it's the third and most important of the points, and that is not just to be seen and to know that we are seen and not just to be close and draw near to the one who draws near to us, but really to be saved and to live under His saving rule. To be saved and to live under His saving rule. Here you can see this coming out especially in verses 11 through 18 in Psalm 132. And again, this is hearkening back to the history as we read earlier in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, you have uh, David's oath and the Lord's oath, David's promise and the Lord's promise. Uh, two different houses being spoken of, right? And there's a the contentional play on the words, the language there when you go back and read through 2 Samuel 7. The Lord, what is the Lord's promise to, to David? You see it here in, in, in the psalm, an enduring dynasty. It is so striking, an enduring dynasty that unfolds over the course of centuries. You see it there in verses 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. 
If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now, what is he promising? He is promising an enduring dynasty. He is not promising that every one of your kingly descendants will be faithful to me. That was not the promise, nor the history. He is not promising that there will not come maybe even long periods where it looks like the line is just hidden, eclipsed, can't be seen. That's not promised either. What he's promising is that line will last, that that line will endure. It will be a forever enduring dynasty. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what unfolds. It's exactly what we saw earlier as we were reading from Luke 1. Who is this Jesus? How is He described? Let me, let me take you back there again, lest you missed it. Luke chapter 1, uh, just a little portion of what we read earlier. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. These words from an angel of heaven to this peasant girl living there in Nazareth. Some centuries later, Luke 1, verses 32 to 33, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is Jesus. This is great David's greater son on the scene. The fulfillment of all these promises and the hopes and fears of all the years finally coalescing in him. So that's God's promise and His purpose in all of this. Of course, David had purposes. God has His purposes. God's purpose in promising this enduring dynasty and this eventual descendant is that, well, as the people are living, waiting, living in those centuries, anticipating the coming of this king as the kings that they lived under failed to be what they were supposed to be, it would point them towards their need all the more for the one true king. That guy can't be it. We need more. King after king after king after king. It's a living parable, a lesson for them right there on the throne. And even to the degree positively, that they, to the degree that in some cases they were faithful, and they did walk in obedience in accordance to the Lord's commands. And they were faithful in representing Him there before the people as a monarch and a ruler was supposed to be. Even so, it was meant to whet their appetite. Okay, here's a little taste of it, but how much more will this great king be? This, not just David, but the son of David who is coming. This Jesus, this Jesus that is, and His, his work as, as a king is captured so beautifully, His office and the way He fulfills that office as a king is captured so beautifully. It's there, and if you printed it off in the quotes and notes, the wet little line there from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and, and the, the, it's number 26, and the, and the question goes like this, and you can get a sense already of how old this question is, uh, how doth Christ executeth? the office of a king? And here's the answer. Christ executes the office of a king by subduing us to Himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. 
That's a sermon series right there, that question and that answer. That's your full-orbed picture of who this is that's come on the scene, who it is and, in fact, is the fulfillment of David's desire and the Lord's promises. This is our greatest need, to live under the saving rule of this king at all times, at all times. Now, we don't do kings very well, do we? I mean, the last time we had one, we kind of, you know, we fought a war over that. Um, Americans don't do kings very well. Uh, We're okay inaugurating presidents, but we're not so keen on coronating kings. Truth be told, no one's good with kings. Not really. And certainly not a king like this, whose rule and reign is absolute. Absolute. Every arena under His Lordship. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you need to understand. The whole of your life, everything. There's not a hidden moment, not a hidden place. Everything lived under the Lordship of of Jesus. And yet, and yet, how adept we are, how adept we are at our personalized, selective areas of submission, which is a, here's a fancy word, a non sequitur when you're talking about the King of the Kings and the Lord of the Lords, for us to try and parcel things off. No, no. And then you think, well, what, what, would, what would move my heart? What would move any of our hearts? What, what is the vision that we would need to transform us, to, to get us away from that, that parceling and that parceling off of certain aspects of our lives? Well, perhaps it might be grappling with the flow of events as we see, say, for instance, in 2 Samuel 7 and the pronouncement of this promise. And then it's being spoken of sometime later in Psalm 132, and then even much later, it's realization, as we read in Luke 1. And then connecting the dots with all of that. And What I mean by that is connecting the dots in terms of the implications. His faithfulness to us. Oh, His faithfulness to His promises. Though they take millennia to unfold, His faithfulness to His promises, His commitment to His people, a love that will not let us go, such that we ought to be able to say in the quiet moments, if we will but take them, the still moments, if we will but find them, and let this land upon our hearts, oh, Jesus, if I can see your faithfulness and your commitment to us there and then, how much more so for us in here and now? Help me connect 
and hold these dots together. To live as a person who, who's living out the, the real implications of these things. Oh, our, greatness, our greatest need, in the times of our greatest need, our, it is to know the Lord. And part of that is to live, to, to submit, to give ourselves under His saving rule. I, I want to just end the, land the plane with this, um, end our time here in Psalm 132 in this way. There are different, different ways, and they're all right. I just want to get them in front of you. There are different ways to read a psalm. There are different levels of interpretation that, that are worth grappling with, okay? Now, the most obvious one is to ask yourself, who is the original author? What's their context? What's going on? What's causing them to write what they're writing? Okay, that, that would be, yeah, that's right, level number one. Level number two, who's the intended audience? Perhaps at the time in which it's being written, you know, what's going on? And in the years, especially with the Psalms, and in the years after that, as, you know, this is the, the, the prayer book that the Lord has given us. So, as the years unfold and you're moving away from the original context, but still yet, this is the prayer book for the people, what would that have been like? Hence, like the Psalms of Ascent, right? As the pilgrims are, it's what we're exactly what were the questions that we're wrestling with as we're thinking about what it's like to sing these together in the Psalms of Ascent, 120 to 134. Okay, that's level one, that's level two. Here's level three. What would it have been like for Jesus to sing these words in the synagogue? Jesus, who ultimately is the one that every one of these psalms is pointing towards. In fact, we, could, we need to push it even further, as mind-blowing as that is, you know, asking ourselves what it must have been like for Jesus to be singing these psalms in the synagogue, Jesus leading His disciples up to temple as a pilgrim on their way to the annual feast. What would that have been like? But what Jesus is the original singer of the song. He's not just singing these words. These are ultimately from His lips. So, okay, with that in mind, let's reread verses 1 through 5. Can we do that for a minute? And just grappling with the reality that truly these psalms are the songs of Jesus. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Ah. Uh, the one who sings these words is the ultimate fulfillment of David's desire for the presence of the Lord to be amidst his people. The one who sings these words is the, the living embodiment of the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord gives to David that there would in fact be one from your body, an enduring dynasty, and a descendant to come. It's him 
And so even as David is vowing to draw near, we see all the more so Jesus vowing to draw near and endure the worst imaginable hardship that he could. Draw near and draw us near. Again, I don't know where you are this morning. You know, maybe it's like, you know, maybe you really, that were those words from the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16 to Hagar really resonated with you. Where are you and why are you here? Maybe that really pierced something in you this morning. Friend, we need to hear and hold to these words, to these realities as we're finding here in Psalm 132. Our greatest need in challenging times is to know the Lord. That He sees us, that He draws near to us, and His is a saving rule. Let's pray together. Lord, You know there are many types of crises represented even in this place, and there are perhaps as many types, there are many ways we have of responding. We ask that You and Your mercy would make it increasingly so that we would know that we are made for Your presence. It would be moving longingly towards You, laying hold of these Your words, knowing that even in the midst of whatever it is, we are seen. We draw near to the one who is drawn near to us. We live under the saving rule of the matchless King of all things, whose faithfulness to us and commitment to us has been proven and proven and proven. Would you please encourage and embolden us? Amen. We are continuing in our time of worship, and this is part of a response. That's what the giving of our